a little warmer than that. This is like one of my best friends. Amen. 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 Um, how's everyone doing today? So I first want to say that what an awesome experience we had in God's presence this morning. Amen. And uh, also want to say that I'm so honored to be serving here in this church. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I love Citywide Church. Uh, I mean, a little more. Come on, it's Citywide Church. Who's here? Who, lo who loves this church? Amen. So, uh, I mean, from the from the very first day that I stepped into this church, you know, the leaders here, Pastor and his wife, they've uh, they've been building us up and speaking life into us, and it's it's an honor. It's a privilege to to have God-given leaders like that. So I also, you know, in his absence, I just want to kind of honor him. So with a round of applause, let's just celebrate the God-given leaders that we have here. Amen. Um, so for those of you wondering who I am, uh, as Lori said, my name's Emmanuel Short. They just call me Emma. Uh, my wife and I here are the City Kids Church directors. So we run the children's ministry here. Uh, we have two beautiful girls, Addison, who is two, Olivia, who's now eight months old, and um, we we absolutely love what God's led us to do here in His church. We've been doing it for about three years now, and um, I mean, all I can say is that you know, City Kids Church, we rock. You know, it's it's an awesome ministry. Um, it's an awesome ministry to serve for. It's an awesome ministry just for the church to have. Um, you know, like I said, as of right now, the kids are outside just celebrating. You know, Sunday, celebrating the end of the summer, and. Um, if I can say one thing about the, the City Kids Church staff, I would say that you couldn't find another group of people who love your children and who are as invested in their spiritual well-being as here in this church. Amen. And um, in this is the last week of our series, uh, Ordinary, and what we're talking about today is raising godly children. Um, you know, naturally, as a, a city, as a children's ministry director, that's what Pastor asked me to speak on, and you know. First and foremost, what I wanted to do was speak to those who don't have any children, uh, because it's very easy for for you to think, you know, well, I don't have any kids, or I can't even stand kids, and just kind of check out on me. And you know, what I would kind of plea with you is that you don't check out. You you pay attention because you have a role in raising these kids, just like these parents do. And uh, you know, and today we're also not going to talk about you know keeping your kids in check. You know, I'm not talking about. Uh, timeout versus uh, spankings, you know. Um, it's more about, you know, our children, they can grow up to be smart, you know, athletic, polite, uh, well-spoken, and uh, popular, but they can still lack a very important relationship, and that's the relationship with Jesus Christ. And for the most part, I would say that parents, we feel ill-equipped when it comes to, to kind of building up the faith of our children. You know, uh, a fun fact is that if we took all the books that were written on parenting and divided them by the, the number of days in a year, we would have 10 days, I mean, we would have 10 books to read a day for the next 21 years. So that's a, that's a lot of books. And the thing is, that gives us over 70,000 titles to search from, to search through, to pick a book. And if, you know, I would argue that if you really think about it, publishers would not write or let those books be written unless there was a profit to be made. So 70,000 titles, I mean, a, a Barnes and Noble store holds about 30,000 books. So that means that it would take two Barnes and Noble stores just to hold almost all of the books, one title each on parenting alone. 
And that tells me that parents are buying these books by the truckload because we're lost. You know, we, we're seeking guidance. We're seeking direction when it comes to raising our children. And, you know, when it's, it's very easy, as I said, for us to overlook children's ministry. And what I wanted to do really quickly, as I said, is speak to those who, who kind of think that children's ministry isn't important. You know, the funny thing is, is that when we look in the Bible, we see that the disciples kind of felt the same way. You know, if we if we were to turn to to uh, Mark 10, is where Jesus really speaks on it, and we'll start at verse 13, and it says here that the people brought children to Jesus, hoping that he might touch them, but the disciples shooed them off. Now, right away, it was almost as if they were saving Jesus from the hassle of dealing with a kid. You know, it's almost like they were protecting him, like you know. Jesus, this is beneath Jesus to speak to children. And when I read it, I first read Jesus as kind of being polite, you know, soft-spoken, you know, kind of like Mother Teresa. And, you know, it kind of excused himself. But then I read it in the, in the message translation, and it kind of puts it into perspective. It really kind of struck a chord in my heart. And in verse 14, Jesus, Jesus it says that Jesus was irate, meaning he was fuming. He was upset. And he let them know it. It says, don't push these children away. Don't ever get between me and them. These children are the very center of life in the kingdom. Mark this, unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you will never get in. Then gathering the children up in his arms, he laid his hands of blessing on them. And if you think that maybe I'm overselling it a little, maybe Jesus wasn't as upset as, as I'm saying that he is. But if we take it a step further and look into Matthew 18, verse 6, for me, reading this, I see that Jesus kind of has a, a, a mafia or a Tony Soprano moment. You know, he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean, this is, you know, me growing up in Bridgeport, Whenever I got into an altercation, I would hear my mom saying something just like this, you know, and, and I kind of picture Jesus in my mind saying, let me find you touching my kids. Let me see you messing with my kids. You know, if I catch you messing with my kids, it would be better for you to be swimming with the fishes. So it's not in a way where Jesus is saying, you know, you know, treat the kids nice. No, he's saying you better, you better lead these kids to me. You better not be a stumbling block to them. Amen. And the thing is, if, if we were to take those passages in Mark and Matthew and combine them with the Great Commission, we would hear Jesus saying that when God calls us to make disciples of the nations, he isn't excluding children. Fail to build up a heart after God in the future leaders of not only the church, but of the world. I heard a, a, a famous quote, and it says that a church that fails to minister to children is in danger of dying in a generation. See, as a church, grandparents, friends, uncles, we are all called to support parents as ordinary people in raising kid-sized Christians with the help of an extraordinary God. And sadly, I, I, I hear it all the time when, when, I, when I talk to people, even parents, about helping out in kids' ministry. You know, what I get is kind of like a reserve they take a few steps back and they're like, 
uh, kids ministry is definitely not my calling. And the thing is, is for me, that's that's a problem. And and I believe that Jesus would would agree. Uh, and you know, I would say that I hate to break it to you, but I really don't mind telling you this. You know, if you have children, you're already in children's ministry. Now, you've already been called to lead kids to God. And if and if right now you're at a time where, where you're like, well, you know, I don't have any kids, but I want kids soon, then what you're saying is that you want to be in children's ministry. You know what I mean? And, and I'm not saying that, that now, you know, we're going to come down on you guys and force you to join children's ministry. I mean, honestly, I shouldn't have to force anyone because the, min, the ministry, like I said, it, it serves my heart just seeing these children have a hunger and a joy for God, you know? And I would hope that you guys would see that as well and want to help out, not only raising, you know, helping, you know, teach your children, but just teach other children. Because the sad fact is that a lot of children in this church, maybe have, come with people other than their parents. They come with an older cousin, they come with an aunt, with an uncle, with a grandmother. So what that means is that these children are going home to parents that aren't led by the Spirit. And <clears throat> the other thing is, is that, yes, yeah, Sunday school is important, but it, it isn't enough. I mean, the time that these children spend in Sunday school isn't enough to set them on a course that leads to God. I mean, as a church, we'll, we are very ill-equipped to, as Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. I feel that, that family devotional time is very important. What I mean is that on your own personal time with your children at home, there should be a weekly Bible study. And I know I know what you guys are thinking, you know, I'm new, I'm new to the church, I don't know the Bible like that. I mean, we got you covered. I mean, when when my wife and I were looking for a curriculum, we were, we were trying to look for a curriculum that was more family orientated than just for the children. You know, we wanted to shift our perspective from just training up children to training up parents who can train up their children. So the awesome thing about our curriculum here, I mean, I have a, a sheet here that is from one of the lessons that, that the children, they do. And this is actually what the kids have in Sunday school. And on the, on the back of it, it has what they call a Bible focus or a take home. And a lot of you guys may be thinking, okay, I don't have the time in my hectic schedule to do a Sunday, to do a, a Bible study. But the thing is, it, it plans it all for you. I mean, it says right here, for fun, every night at dinner time, do this challenge. So it, it also just encourages you as, as a family to one, sit down at the dinner table, which has been lost. I mean, I know in my house, my wife has a few rules. We eat dinner at the table and there's no cell phones at the table. And it's because I know like in, in when I was growing up, I, I ate on the floor watching TV. Like, everything I did, I did in front of the TV. And we're trying to avoid that in our own home. So I would, you know, challenge you to do the same in yours. And then even, there's a word of the week. So every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there's a Bible verse with a few questions. And it's not rocket science. It's not hard. And, you know, what I loved about this curriculum is that it, it, it starts to teach children that being a Christian is a, a daily thing. It's not just Sunday. It's Monday, it's Tuesday, and it's something that we do as a family. And, you know, doing this as a family is us drawing the line in the sand and saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
know, it's us sticking a godly flag in the front of our lawn and saying, this house belongs to God. And the thing is, a lot of that's been lost nowadays. And in preparation for this message, I asked a few parents, what was your motivation for being a parent? You know, why did you want to be a parent? And the sad truth is that what I got was kind of a, I don't know, like a shrug of the shoulders. And I don't think that it makes that person or those people a bad parent because I myself, it took me a couple days to really sit down and kind of chew that question over and really, really think about why did I want to become a parent. So most of the time what I got was I don't know. But after we sat down and talked about it, after I myself sat down and, and prayed over it and kind of chewed over it, I realized that the reason why I became a parent is simply just because my child exists. You know, so it's sort of like, you know, the baby's here because of me, so I guess I got to take care of it now. You know, who else is going to do it? It's my responsibility. And it's not that that is wrong. You know, it's not 100% wrong. It's just not 100% at all. It's not complete because it overlooks why children are here. I mean, if we read the Bible, it says, it says clearly in Psalms 127 that children are a blessing, a heritage. So that's what children are. They're a blessing to us. And sometimes, you know, when I read, when I first read it, I'm like, sounds good. You know what I mean? As, as me and my wife are trying to have a conversation and, and Addison's running around screaming about something or, you know, she's doing this new thing now that, that whenever she is not getting my attention, she just starts to cry that her feet hurt and I got to massage her feet. So she's already learning how to kind of milk daddy and get what she wants from daddy. And, and it, it's hectic, you know? And the truth is, is that being a parent is very, very inconvenient. That's the sad truth. It's the hard truth. It might sound a little weird coming from me. What do you mean being a parent is inconvenient? I mean, think about it. There's a, there's a, there's a, a few people here who have babies, they have newborns. And then there's a few people here who have babies on the way. FYI, if you don't want to have kids, don't drink the water here. Because it seems like every woman that's newly married is getting pregnant. Stay away from the water at Citywide Church. I don't know if it's here, somewhere else. It's very contagious. You know, I'm just letting it out there. You know, for a little while, I was afraid that I might end up pregnant myself. But, so what, what I was saying, I lost my track now trying to be silly. Um... Like children are a blessing. We'll go there. And uh, so, again, so, yeah, life is hectic. There we go. That's where I was at. So, okay, so you, I don't want to scare you, but you, you want to sleep, right? You want to sleep. You're tired. You know, you don't feel good. Your back hurts. No matter how you feel, there's still dinners to be made. You know, there's still diapers to be changed. There's still bottles to be made. There's still homework to help with. You know, there's boo-boos to kiss. There's advice, there's advice to give. Parenting does not care what you want to do or what you have to do. And I would say that, that parenting is a boot camp for dying to yourself. You know, we have to serve our children selflessly. You know, thinking of them first and ourselves last. And as Christians, we're all called to serve. You know, God says that, that, you know, he called, he came here to, to serve, not to be served. So 
I would challenge you all as Christians that if you have a relationship with God and, and you know him as your Lord and Savior, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you come every Sunday expecting to be served, it's like going home and eating a feast and then going to the soup kitchen and expecting those who are without to serve you food. Yes, we do come to church, and yes, it does feel good. But I can tell you from experience that me serving other people feeds my spirit so much more than me receiving food. Amen? And then I would also say that if we find it hard to serve our children, then I would, I would say that it would be impossible to serve a stranger. Amen? Now, that was just my intro. Um, it looks like we're still going to make it for lunch, so I'm going to try to get through it, you know? So um, ask your neighbor. Everyone look to your neighbor and say, what's for lunch today? So, you know, ask for me and my house. We're having Massimo's today, amen? So really quickly, let me just pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that you would be with us, Father. We thank you for the awesome experience here together in your presence pray that you would be with us, that you would quiet our minds and soften our hearts, God. I pray that you would hide me behind your cross. I pray that the words I speak today will be yours and not mine. I thank you for everything that you've done for me and everything that you will do for me. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, in order to successfully raise kid-sized Christians, I would say that we would have to allow God to work on our hearts. You know, our heart is the heart of the matter. You know, our heart is the problem. And in the same time where God is working on our hearts, we should explore God's heart and God's plan for parenting. And whether we can admit it or not, or whether it's deeply rooted or at the surface, we struggle with seeing things God's way or doing things God's way. So I have a few things that I'm going to do today. Like I said, most of the time when I'm, when I'm ministering, I'm, I'm speaking to children. So we're going to do a couple object lessons, which, is, which are things that I do with the kids to kind of keep Sunday school fun. And I just have a few questions here. The first question is, by show of hands, right? Who here believes that kangaroos once lived in the Middle East? Show of hands. So as of right now, kangaroos are only found in Australia, and there's no evidence of them being anywhere else. So there's not one person, right? So kangaroos never been to the Middle East. Now, secondly, who here believes that the flood in the Bible story of Noah was a real event? Show of hands. Tons of hands up now. I set you guys up, just letting you know right now. So who here, again, show of hands, believes that the ark that Noah built was a real ship? Amen. We got a bunch of Bible-believing Christians in here. That's, that's actually rare, just so you guys know. Um, so here's another question. Who here believes that on Noah's Ark there are one male and one female of every animal, just as the Bible says, including the kangaroo? I, I'm thinking now that maybe I should not preach on, like, children, but preach preach on like the divinity and the authority of the Bible because that right there just shows us all I mean everyone saw what I did right so I know what's going to happen right but who here now believes that kangaroos once lived in the Middle East 
everybody's hands up, right? So, I mean, what that really, really shows us is that we don't think biblically, you know? What I did to come to that answer was I thought with the Bible as foundational to my thinking. I mean, here's another one. Everyone should get this one right. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Who here believes chicken? Right? Who here believes egg? So, yeah, they are scared to raise their hands now. So, basically what it is, is in Genesis 1.20, we see that, that the Bible says that God created the birds that flew in the air, not the eggs that hatched. So, it would be obvious to a Bible-believing Christian that the chicken came first. The chicken laid the egg, the eggs hatched, and now there's more birds. Right? You know, when, when God created man, it was Adam, not an embryo. You know, so, so that's the kind of thinking that we have to have. I mean, statistics show that one out of three Americans believe the Bible to be accurate, right? And the dangerous thing about our culture is that we're being conditioned to find truth outside of God and inside of ourselves, right? So how is it that America was founded by all believers, but now church and state are divided or separated in a way that wasn't intended, right? I mean, how is it that the first school in America was founded by the church, but now children aren't allowed to pledge allegiance to God. You know, even though 90% of Americans define themselves as Christians, only 20% of Americans believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I mean, at times, I, I, I kind of become overwhelmed with a sense of urgency when it comes to the future that my children, our children, are going to inherit here. And, I mean, when you think about it, the disaster in Newtown where all those babies were slaughtered. You know, in Syria where those weapons are being used. And on a lighter note, Miley Cyrus twerking on stage. I mean, that set me back a few years. I mean, the, the world... It's funny that there's a lot of conspiracy theorists would say that the devil, you know, that these people work for the devil and they're trying to do this to, to twist our kids. But the thing is, they don't know that they're a pawn in the plans and the lies of the enemy. But the thing is, he's still doing it, though. You know, if you really, really think about how he set it up, he's playing chess. I mean, 10 years ago, where was Miley Cyrus? She was Hannah Montana. All-American country girl. A Christian upbringing, you know, I, I think of a lot of little girls who kind of idolized her, you know, they had the costumes, they had the wig, and they see her doing these things, and they want to be like her, but then as she gets older, she just does a 180, and now, like I said, she's on stage twerking, so what are those same little girls who were, who were kind of a big fan of Hannah Montana thinking now, well, she was okay then, she's okay now, I guess that's how we act. You know, and the thing is, is how does all this happen? You know, how do we get to America is a, a Christian country to now, you know, we're an open country of tolerance. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Judges 2. Now, in an old school church, what they would say is say amen when you flip to it. But nowadays, I would say just say amen when your app loads up, right? 
Some of you guys are too cheap to buy the data plan, so it's going to take a little while to upload. I'm one of those people. I mean, I ain't, I ain't got $200 a month of data. I'm all right. I'll just hop on somebody's Wi-Fi. So, <laughs> Judges 2, we're, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. And it says here, it says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each their own inheritance. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord has done for Israel. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. It says, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Now, verse 10, this is the important verse here. This is kind of what helped me set up this whole message. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he did for Israel. How does that happen in just one generation? I mean, under Joshua's leadership, Israel served God. They knew God was powerful. They knew he was holy, eternal, extraordinary. Still, Joshua died. The leaders that were working with him died. And the very next generation, verse 10, knew neither the Lord nor what he did for Israel. I mean, how, how does that happen in just one generation? I mean, I read a quote. When researching that Bible verse, I came across a quote from Ronald Reagan, and it was everywhere. I mean, everyone who were quoting or, or speaking from Judges 2 always referred to this quote. And in it, Ronald Reagan says, freedom is never more than one generation away from being extinct. Since we didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream, it must be fought for, protected, and handed down for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Now, in the same way that he's talking of freedom, I would say we can take freedom out and put our relationship with Christ, you know, our knowledge of God. I would say that, you know, our knowledge of God is only one generation away from extinction. What he's done for us and what he's called us to do or what he's called us to be can be lost between us and our children. And the thing is, it would be awesome if being a Christian was hereditary. I mean, that would make life so much easier if we were Christians, so that means that our kids are Christians. But the thing is, is that our knowledge of God, our relationship with God must be fought for, protected, and handed down. We must teach our children so they do the same with their children. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our grandchildren what it was once like when we knew God. See, what happened in Joshua's time is happening now in the time that we live today. And when really, really looking at it all to break it down, I feel that it happens in stages. You know, it's almost like we have this thing where we're doing fine when, we're, when this this is why we come to church, right? So we're doing fine when God is kind of like on our mind. But when God is out of sight and out of mind, 
is where we start to lose our place, where we start to stumble and slip. And the thing is, is that, you know, God is first loved, and then he's downgraded to just being tolerated. And then we kind of begin to ignore God. And then lastly, he just end, we just end up hating him. You know, we, we follow God, so God's leading us. And then we kind of walk alongside God. And then we end up just dragging God along. And then we just walk away from him altogether. I mean, first we know God. Then we assume God. Then God is rejected. And then God is forgotten. I mean, if I can give you an example, it's sort of like we hear it all the time. It sounds, it's almost cliche. You know, God's a provider. So if we don't train our children up to what that actually means, they're going to assume that God is like a genie in a bottle. So then life's going to happen. Life's going to get hard. The broken world is going to take something from them. And because they assumed that God was one way, and it turned out that he's not, according to their assumption, they're going to get angry. Right? And then they're going to reject God. You know, God, why would you do this to me? My mother said you were a provider. That's the problem. My mother said. What did you find out on your own? What does the Bible say about God? Right? My mom said that you were a provider. Now this is happening to me. It's very, very dangerous for us as parents to assume that our children get it. I mean, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7, the Bible charges parents with the responsibility of leading children into godly living. Verse 6, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That's 24-7, 365. And the thing is, is that a lot of parents, they take that or they take their Christian living and they kind of beat their children over the head with it. You know, it's sort of like, anyone here ever seen the movie Waterboy? Anyone remember his mom? Foosball's not for my Bobby. Foosball's of the devil. It's the same way. We can say the same thing. You know, Disney's not for my girls. Disney's of the devil. Just because we keep our girls or keep our boys from watching SpongeBob does not mean that they're saved. Just because they don't have a Drake album on their iPod doesn't mean they're saved. It goes a little deeper than that. And today, what what I wanted to say is that if we kind of give our children rules and we beat them over the head with legalism, that's only going to build up resentment, resistance, and rebellion towards God. So what I want us as parents to take from today is a few practical yet biblical examples as to what Deuteronomy 6 is asking of us as parents and then what Judges 2 is telling us to avoid. So I have a few points. My first point is this. We must parent on purpose for a purpose. So unfortunately for most of us, our parenting is unintentional. What I mean is that it's it's spur of the moment. It's kind of reactive. We don't really put too much planning into it. 
And I would strongly encourage everyone to, to sit down with the entire family and kind of write a mission or a vision for the family. You know, sit down as a unit and kind of plan out the course that leads to God. And have your children kind of help out as well. You know, add some things that they feel that the family should do. Whether it be, like I said, devotional time. Whether it be fasting as a family. Whether it be praying or serving, soup kitchens. Anything like that. Just set up a vision and mission for the family. And then hold each other accountable to it. So, we must also take the real life, real time, teaching moments of life. And use them. I mean, let's just say the family pet dies. The children are sad. It's a perfect opportunity to explain to them the fall of man, how sin and death entered into the world. And it's not that we go over those things once and never mention it again. I mean, what if we celebrated your birthday, your first birthday, and then never celebrate it again? I mean, how often do we celebrate Christmas? How often do we celebrate Easter? Every year. And I believe that that's how God intended it. I mean, in Joshua 4, we read that the people of Israel were going to finally inherit the promised land. But first, they had to overcome the obstacle of the Jordan River. Now, because God is gracious, they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. But what God said was, take 12 men, grab 12 stones, and set up a memorial for this event. And the purpose for this memorial we see in Joshua 4, verse 24. And it says, so that all people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So we see this trend over and over and over again in the Bible. I mean, Exodus 12, verse 14 concerning the Passover, it reads, this is a day to remember. Each year from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. It is the law for all time. The same chapter, verse 17, celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you. Remembrance. It will remind you that I brought you I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. The festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this from generation to generation. And then sometime later in Luke 22, we see that Jesus told the disciples to make preparations for the Passover. And while they were all sitting on the table and they're ready to celebrate, this is where Jesus kind of springs on them and tells them, the plan for salvation. And in verse 19, we see that he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, God is well aware that as a broken people, we are in need of reminders. I mean, God has to constantly remind us that he loves us, that we love him, that he's powerful. I mean, it's in our nature, as I said, we celebrate all these days, we celebrate Easter and, and Christmas every year, and it's just to remind us that a Savior was born. It's to remind us that a Savior died for us to be saved. 
I mean, we're, we're kind of wired that way. I don't know about you, but me, if you were to look at my phone, I think I have about six or seven alarms just to wake me up in the morning to get out of bed. 605, 607, 611, you know, 630 is like, I know like I'm in trouble. I got to get out or I'm going to be late. So in that same way, that's God. He's got all these reminders set up. He's got all these alarm clocks set up to remind you, hey, I love you. You know, I, 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 I kind of made fun of Stephen one time because he does this thing with, with his fiance that, of course, Heather was like, that's so cute. I'm like, whatever. So he has it set on his phone to text Yoshi and tell her that he loves her. Or to text her and say that I love you. Or to text her and say that she's beautiful. I mean, I'm usually not one of those no-hoper people, you know, like, oh, it's gonna change. But I had to say it to him. I was like, yeah, wait till you have kids. But either way, in the same way, that's God to us. He's constantly reminding us, constantly reminding us because he knows that we need those reminders. Because again, like I said, if he's out of sight and out of mind, then we're in trouble. My second point, we must be who we want our children to become. Now, another object lesson. What I want everyone to do is kind of just look at me. And I'm going to tell you to touch a certain part of your body. And when I say it, you do it. You don't have to wait for me to say Simon Says. You know, I just want you to kind of just do it, all right? So we're going to start. Everyone, touch your eyes. Touch your nose. Touch your mouth. Touch your ears, touch your eyes, touch your nose, touch your ears. Who fumbled, right? Some people fumbled, right? Because I was saying one thing, but I was doing another thing. So our children are the same way. I mean, we can point to heaven and to God with our mouths, but then we can lead them straight to hell with our actions. You know, our children have to see us living a life of a, of a Christ follower. They have to see patience and love. They have to see us serving. They have to see us, you know, be humble. But at the same time, they have to see a godly confidence. They have to see us conquer. You know, they, they even have to see us fail. But because of God's grace, we get back up and just keep pushing forward. One thing that would help us help our children know and love God would be to know and love God for ourselves. So if I had to unpack it, I wouldn't pack it this way, right? So before me and my wife met, they set her up on a blind date. So she went on this date with this guy and he thought it was a good idea to put his finger in her soda. Now, if anyone knows my wife, they would know that she's a germaphobe. I mean, my daughter's nine months old. I still have to wash my hands every time I pick my, my baby girl up. So, needless to say, the day came to a sudden end. They're on a ride home, and the ride home was awkward, quiet. You know, Heather's looking at this kid like, this guy's weird. She's worried if she's going to end up as his jacket. You know what I mean? He's maybe a serial killer or something. I mean, and even when, when talking to her, she says that, you know, when, when she first saw him, she thought, this guy's not even my type. 
Because right away I was like, because it wasn't me. Right? So she's home. She gets home. She runs out of the car, not looking back, and basically breaks down the door to get inside the house. And I think she, with her jacket still on, she whips out her phone and calls her friend, like, you're dead. And they're like, what happened? And she told him the whole story. And what Heather found out was that the guy was a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. So that was their mistake. They didn't know the guy for themselves. I mean, I would, I would encourage you that if you ever set up a friend, please let it be someone you know. So that way you can kind of have some, some qualifications. You know, he's got good credit, he works, and he's got a car, he doesn't live with his mom. You know, he's not crazy, you know, he's always looking good, he smells good. So you have to know someone to kind of build them up that way. You know what I mean? So in the same way, we have to know God for ourselves to make a proper introduction. You know, we, we, can't, we can't force our children to love God. It's not going to happen. You know, all we can do as parents is introduce or set up our children on a blind date with God. But like I said, if we say God's a provider and assume that they know what it means, you know, they got to be teaching that stuff in Bible school, you know, Sunday school, you know, God's a provider, he's a healer. But then something happens where they think God didn't provide or something happens that they think God, you know, didn't, didn't heal them, then in the same way, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? They're going to look at us like, you're dead. I'm never, ever, ever going to listen to anything you say about God because you're wrong. So we have to be very, very careful that we know God for ourselves. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, if we do a good job at just making a proper introduction, if we don't try to put our hands in the mix, I mean, me and Heather set up a few friends on on blind dates and it didn't work out, but we still like, oh, you know, we, after it was all said and done, we're still in there like, oh, you should go out for another time or. You know, we're trying to manipulate the system or manipulate them too so that way they can kind of finally link up. It's not going to happen. They're not going to fall in love because we're going to will them to fall in love. We just have to let God kind of meet up with them and and kind of just sweep them off their feet. I mean, I believe God can do it with my girls, you know? And then the, my, my third point is the application of our influence as parents is important. I mean, believe it or not, the most influential people in a child's life are their parents. You know, if your children see that when you're out in public, people meet your public representative, Dr. Jekyll, and then when you're home, you give them Mr. Hyde, there's nothing more devastating to your parental pool. I mean, there's no better way to kill your influence on your children than having double standards. You know, if your children see, you know, mommy, mommy's the same everywhere. You know, she's consistent. Then, you know, it's easier for them to kind of take your words and, and your words, your opinion has some weight to it. You know, and the thing is, the scary and dangerous thing about it is that our influence is built up maybe in their first two to three years of their life. And then for the rest of their life, the world is going to try to tear it apart. And the thing is that a man of his word is a man of influence. And where a man has influence, his opinion matters. See, our opinion as parents should influence who our kids hang out with, you know, who they want to date, 
who they want to marry. I mean, my plan as, as a father to two girls is one, to buy a shotgun, of course. Two, I want to have some input on what happens in their life throughout their whole life, not when they turn 18 and they can do, no. You're my child no matter what. So some of you might think, well, that's a little overdramatic. You know, that's a little, you want to kind of control your children's life. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying let's be abusive, let's be abrasive, let's kind of, you know, take over control. No, what I'm saying is, is that if we really, really hold on and really protect the influence that we have on our children, when they get older, they'll come to us. You know, they'll come to, hey, mom, dad, there's this guy I've been kind of seeing, you know, this is when my girls are like 30, right? There's this guy I've been seeing and, you know, it's getting a little serious and I think he wants to pop the question. You know, and I don't know, should, should I, you know, should I even consider it? That's my prayer that my girls come to me with that. I don't have to come to them and, and kind of jump on them, but they will come to me openly and say, hey, dad, I need a little advice here. Now, there will come a point in a child's life that we kind of have to let go of control and kind of let them do what they're going to do and pray that God's going to take over. And that's all we can do at a certain point is just pray that God will take over. You know, when, when, when we read the story of Samuel in 1 Samuel, we see there's a woman named Hannah who she can't have, she can't have babies. She's barren. And in her pain, she cries out to God, God, hear my prayers. You know, grant me this one thing. Give me a son. Give me children. So in God's graciousness, he hears her prayer and grants it. You know, he gives her this child. But before, she told God, if you give me a child, then I would then dedicate him to you, and he would serve you all the days of his life. I mean, that's to, to, to this day, that's why we, we dedicate babies, because of what Hannah did. And our reason why we do this because we want the same outcome that Hannah had because when she was done raising her son the Bible says that, that he was weaned and a lot of people would take it to assume that she dedicated a baby like we did but that's not really what happened what happened was the weaning process happens in three stages one the baby's wet nurse which means he's breastfed so really quickly I know there's a few guys that have like some troubles with like breastfeeding the Bible endorses it so get used to it. Amen? So secondly, the baby's dry nursed. So that means that he's now no longer breastfeeding, but still a baby. So they kind of have to teach him, you know, to spell, to write, you know, to, to walk, to play, to share. And then the third stage, they're just going to prepare him for life. So when she was done preparing him for life, maybe he's between the ages of 7 to 10 years old is when she brought him to the temple to work in the temple. Now, she left him there and then went home. So that was his home. But she continued to visit him year in and year out. She continued to make clothes for him. So she didn't give up on her parenting and say, hey, let the church take over. What she did was, and you can see it, she kind of built up a confidence. She kind of built up influence in him because what we read in the Bible verse, in the, in the story of Samuel, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, that Eli's sons were scoundrels and they had no regard for the Lord. Now, in the, the temple that he was, there was a, a priest by the name of Eli who had a few sons who, as the Bible says, they 
they had no regard for God. They were stealing from the people. You know, they were stealing from the, the offering. But in the very next verse, in verse, well, in the, in the same story, in verse 18, it says that, that Samuel wasn't affected by these two guys, by these two older boys. You know, and then verse 19, reading that, I would say that, that Samuel's faithfulness was there because of the influence of his mother. You know, so even though his mother wasn't there, the way that his mother brought him up is what kept him on the track to God. I mean, when my girls are older and they go to parties and, you know, they, they end up in a party or they're, they're at the mall and someone says, hey, you know, you want a hit of this? I'm not going to be there to tell them to put it down. See, what I have to do is kind of build an influence, influence them enough to know that that's not what God would want me to do. So really quickly, I know that it seems like I'm talking to parents with younger children. I mean, I would, I would encourage those of you who have older children to not lose hope. I mean, if you were to take my story, you know, my mother and father, were they got divorced when I was very young. I don't even remember them being together. I've always remembered them being separate. And growing up, most of the time I was in, what seemed like normal at the time was looking back, I'm like, wow, that was dysfunctional. So in that, I remember always going to my father's house for, you know, they would split the holidays. I would go over there for extended times in the summer, and I would always see my father faithful to God. And to be honest, I maybe spent out of the whole year, 10% of the year with my dad, and that's being generous. Not that he was a bad father because I don't think he could have done anything better. If he would have done anything better, I probably wouldn't be up here. Or anything different, I probably wouldn't be up here. But the, the point is, is that going to my dad's house, I would remember, you know, them kind of preaching to me, them kind of just telling me about God. And a few times I would accept God. You know, I would say the prayer that we all say. And most of it was to please my father. Not because I wanted it, not because I, I, I knew the Lord for myself, because I knew that that's what my dad wanted me to do. And, and what I wanted to do was make my dad happy. But as I got older, then came the distractions. You know, then came girls. You know, then came friends. So hanging out with my dad really wasn't that cool anymore. You know, pleasing my dad really didn't matter as much. But I can say one thing, that even though the divorce of my parents, I can see that the enemy tried to use that to destroy the calling that God gave me, there was a blessing in it all. And I would strongly, strongly say that it was my stepmom. I call her mom. You know, stepmom, step never comes out. You know, it's always mom. And it's because I can remember from when I was younger, she would always look at me say, God has a calling on you. You know, there's a purpose. And and I say to this day that that is what kind of pulled me towards God. I mean, that's what kept God tugging on my heart, was that constant reminder. And I remember that when Heather, you know, when Lori and Ruben first started coming to this church, Heather would bug me and bug me and bug me, like, we gotta go to this church, we gotta go to this church, like, it's a lot of fun. It, it, it's hip. It's cool. You know, everyone's young. And I'm like, no, 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 no. What church? Pente Pentecost? No. 
not for me. She's like, why not? I'm like, you don't know church the way they do church. Like, mm -mm. And where that was coming from was kind of a respect and a regard for God. I, I, I can say that before that I never served God a day in my life. But I knew enough that I couldn't go to church on Sunday and then live the same way Monday. You know, so I told her, no, when, when you go to church, you got to change your life. You cannot be the same. So I refused to live that way. I refused to do that. And it wasn't because, like I said, I was not serving God. I, I never served God a day in my life. I, I knew some of the Bible, not a lot of the Bible. But what gave me that, what showed me that was the way my father lived. You know, every day I would see him serving the Lord, no matter what. And I would say that right now, I would say that growing up, he prayed for me. So he prayed for me and my brothers. I'm the baby out of all of them. I mean, my father has a few stepchildren that, again, that's his children. Those were his children. So there's no blurred lines in, in our family. I have brothers and sisters, and out of all of them, I'm the youngest. I serve the Lord, and my sister, who is the oldest, serves the Lord. So in between, there's five boys, five men that are lost. But I can say that right now, at this very moment, my father's here, and he's living in the fruit of his prayers. So I would challenge you. I mean, I found the Lord at 25 years old. You know, my father found the Lord when maybe I was two. So that's 22, 23 years of praying for, for us as, as his children. 22, 23 years of praying to then receive the fruit. So it's not too late for you to pray for your children. It's not too late for you to exercise your influence on your children. I mean, and the thing is this, and I, I take that, and it is what is my driving force as a father. I mean, I tell my girl, I have a two-year-old now, so I'm, she's in, she's in boot camp, and she doesn't even know it. I mean, if we look, if we look at, at the way that, that the Muslims raise their children, whether it be, even the Jews, the way they raise their children, they kind of raise them up in a calling. You know, you're, you're, you're destined for greatness. You know? They, they don't raise their children to expect a blessing from God. They raise their children to live in the blessing of God. So in that same way, if you were to ask my two-year-old, what does daddy say you are? She's going to tell you a princess. Without even flinching, daddy says I'm a princess. And she says it, she believes I'm a princess. I mean, she's got the dresses to prove it, right? So, but the thing is, if you turn around and say, hey, Addison, what does God say you are? Guess what? God says I'm a princess. You know? And the reason why we do that is because I, I for one, am not going to allow the world to tell my girls what they are or what they aren't. You know? Daddy's going to build that up and God's going to build that up. And, it, and the, the confidence that they have is not going to be earthly confidence. They're not going to be conceited. You know, they're going to be convinced that they've been called by God. They're going to be convinced that their daddy loves them, both me and their heavenly father. And I didn't come up with that on my own. That's not something that I said, hey, it'd be a good idea if I, you know, raise my daughter to be conceited. No. You know, God the God does that. God did that. You know, when we when we read the story of when Jesus was fasting for 40 days and he went into the wilderness and the enemy was tempting him, 
What did the enemy attack? I mean, Lori touched based on this last week, right? She says that, that she touched based on it, and I read it, and then I heard another pastor say it, so I was like, oh, this is good. This is from God. You know, this is definitely how I'm going to end my sermon. And it was basically that God built up his son, right? So, so the enemy attacked what God, the enemy said, if you really are the son of God, right? He questioned his God-given calling. You know, if you really are the son of God, then do this or do that. And what did Jesus say? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus came back at him with the word of God, which is correct. He said, for it is written. But if I can translate it into a parental translation, I would say that Jesus looked at him and said, well, my daddy says, you know, well, my father told me. Because if we rewind it a little bit and look back to before he went out to the wilderness, Jesus saw that people were being baptized. So he went for himself to be baptized. And when he went in the water, when he came out of the water, the Bible says that the heavens split open and that a, a voice came down from heaven. Now, let me read it because I don't want to miss it because it's here. Matthew 3, verse 17. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. There is no devil in hell that can cause Jesus to question what God told him he was. So with that, I would say that, yes, we have to, we have to give our children a calling. I mean, giving our children a calling is more effective than just giving them rules to live by. So, I know that today I spoke mostly on parenting, but where all these examples and all these things on parenting came from, they came from the Bible, they came from God, but mostly they're modeled after the way that our Heavenly Father parents us, right? You know, in the Bible, we see it everywhere where God tells us what we are, what we're capable of. I mean, Jesus himself said that we would do things greater than he did. I mean, he walked on water, water to wine. I mean, a guy was blind. He spit in the dirt, grabbed the dirt, rubbed it in the guy's eye. Then the guy can see. You know, people couldn't walk, met Jesus, now they can walk. You know, a woman had the issue of blood. She touched his garment. Nowadays, the bottom of his jeans and was healed instantly. With all that being done, Jesus says that we can do things greater than that. So in the same way that I'm challenging you or asking you to build up your children, God is building you up and saying that you're capable of doing what I've put before you. I mean, pastor has given me the great responsibility of closing out an entire series. So when he told me that I was going to be speaking and that I was the, you know, the last person to go up to kind of close out the series, right away I knew exactly what I was going to say. That was the first thing that I knew exactly what I was going to do. So the way that I kind of want to land this plane tonight or today, this morning, is, and this thing, I've used, I used this illustration before, and it, it totally blew my mind, and it, it changed the way that I look at Christianity. It changed the way that I look at leading children, right? And what it was, it, and it's about the elephant in India. Now, the elephant can weigh up to 10,000 pounds. 
and they used this elephant as a crane. So basically, they ripped down trees, they built bridges, they, they moved boulders. So the elephant is doing this all day. But at night, what the keeper of the elephant does is they, they get a piece of thread, they tie it around the right rear leg of the elephant, they tie it to a tree or a branch, and they stick the branch in the, in the sand or in the dirt. Now, the owner of the elephant can leave and rest easy knowing that when he comes in the morning, the elephant will be right where he left it. Now, the way that this is accomplished is when the elephant is a baby, when he's young, they take a big chain and they chain him to a big tree. They put the chain right around his right rear leg and they leave him there, fighting, twisting, pulling to get off of that chain, to break that tree. And when the elephant gives up, they then move to a smaller tree, a smaller chain. And at the end of it all, what they do to really, really test if they've been successful, they take a piece of thread, they tie it around the right rear leg, and they stick it in the dirt. And if the elephant doesn't move, then he's been defeated. Here and here. So I would challenge you that that's us. I would challenge you that we are these monsters, these beasts in God. But yet the world is building up this lie that we can't break free of these chains. But I would challenge you that in God, these chains are nothing but thread. I would challenge you to break these things free. Take hold of your family. Take hold of your children and run towards God. said take what we as a kids church has given you we give you tools to carry this over into Monday carry this over into Tuesday I mean don't try to change the world tomorrow just kind of set your goals and pray that God take over amen amen so I just want everyone to just stand up I'm, I'm gonna just kind of close us out in prayer and Praise and worship is going to take over. I mean, if there's if there's anyone here who, I mean, I can tell you, before studying this, before preparing for this message, I mean, if this hasn't spoken to anyone else here, I know that it's changed the way me and my wife parent. See, I know that this is a God word for me. So I'm hoping that it's a God word for you. And I know that before I was asked to do this, I, I was a little lost in my parenting because, like I said, my daughter's two, so the terrible twos are here in full effect. And sometimes I let my kind of convenience, you know, I let convenience hinder my parenting. But what God showed me is that 
you know, I have to kind of stay patient. I can't lose it. I mean, the world puts our children in one room of our house, and it puts our sanity in the other room of our house. So what my prayer is today is that we take those two and combine them. So I'll be first to admit that sometimes I lose it on my two-year-old. She's two, and I lose it. Addison, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I mean, she just filled a bowl of cereal. All I have to do is clean it up. But because the world has been kind of pounding on my brain and pounding on my mind, I lose fact. I lose the, the, the weight to the fact that she is a blessing in my life. So ever since I received this word from God, I look at that little girl every day as just that. It's a blessing to clean up after her. It's a blessing to wipe her little sister's butt, to change those diapers. And that's the way we have to see it. Amen. So if there's, if there's anyone here, I, I would pray that the ministers will, will come up. If anyone needs prayer, and, you know, I would encourage you to come up and receive prayer. I would also, you know, it's not that the ministers here are any closer to God than you are. You know, if you need prayer, that's awesome, but you can pray over your own situation. You know, you can call down on God yourself for him to show up in your situation. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you for our children. I pray that you would give us strength, Father pray that you would help us see them as a blessing that they are, oh God. We thank you for the responsibility of leading them. We pray that you would be with us and that you would lead us. We pray that our ears would be forever to your mouth, God. We pray that our hearts will be open. We pray that you would help us think like them, Father, that you would bring us down to their level. We pray that we would not overlook the significance of ministering to children who are not ours, oh God. I pray that you would instill a sense of urgency in our hearts to build these children up. I believe that the battle of our people, of God's people, is won in our children. I mean, if we can grab hold of our children and build them up for God, then they will change the world.